Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. 30% of the land surface of the United States, 600 million acres, is in public hands. That's 10 times the total land area of Great Britain. In fact, the federal government has overseen millions of acres since our nation was formed, and despite local and national disputes, For much of the U.S. history, our public lands have helped to unify Americans across the political spectrum. That is, until recent decades when some conservatives, most recently Donald Trump, have used issues surrounding federally owned lands to divide voters. John Leshy, emeritus professor of the University of California Hastings College of the Law, has studied and crafted environmental policy and law since the 1970s, including serving nearly eight years as solicitor in the Department of the Interior during the Clinton administration. He examines the evolution of American public land policymaking in his new book from Yale University Press called Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor John Leshy to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much, Leonard. I'm delighted to be here. Well, since 600 million acres of forests, plains, wetlands, deserts, and shorelines in the U.S. are publicly owned, does that make each uh, accessible to us all, like city parks and state parks? The vast, vast majority of those 600-plus million acres are open to the general public and accessible by all and are widely used for primarily for recreation, open space, uh, life-changing encounters with nature, inspiration, uh, learning from their cultural and scientific resources, etc. So they're, uh, they're one of America's greatest national assets, although underappreciated. Well, isn't some of it subject to mining, logging, and other industrial activities? Yes, but a declining proportion, and these days a really small proportion. Um, uh, mining takes place on perhaps a few million acres of the 600 million, logging on maybe a few tens of millions of acres. But the vast uh, majority are really open space and and managed primarily for conservation. Now, one, one a fairly large exception to that is livestock grazing. Livestock grazing is found on probably 200 plus million acres of that land. But the intensive really industrial uses take place only only on a very small proportion. And how far back does that go in our history? The public lands? Yeah, uh, the use of public lands for private usage. Oh, uh, well, really from the beginning. Um, the uh, In the post-Civil War era, the public lands were uh, intensively used and opened for mining and logging and, and that sort of thing to, to help sort of settle the West, the European-American expansion across the the Western United States. So the intensive industrial uses really started after the Civil War and then dwindled after World War II. Um, uh, Mining and logging and and that sort of thing uh, dwindled after World War II. And so the open space, the management for open space and conservation uh, has been increasing. The proportion has been increasing over time in in a very consistent way. There's almost no backtracking. More and more lands are protected for these open space uses. Are we talking mostly about national lands or also city parks and state parks? Well, my book talks about national lands. Now, you know, you can define public lands in different ways, open to the public. State parks, uh, Central Park in New York is public land. Uh, but I'm talking about the land that the United States government mm-hmm. owns. 
and manages. And, and that's interesting that we have such a large proportion of the national real estate owned by the national government, because when you think about it, you know, the national government sort of distrusted and uh, regarded as uh, uh, not not uh, worthy of doing a lot of things. But in the public lands area, the, the American public have accepted the idea for more than a century that the United States should hold on to these lands and manage them through through federal agencies like the Park Service and Forest Service and that sort of thing. Well, is the U.S. unusual in the amount of land that's held by the nation? Because according to the Canadian government, 89% of Canada's land area is crown land, which is owned by federal or provincial governments. And that's almost 2.2 billion acres. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Canada is probably closest to us uh, in, in, that, in that respect. Australia, to some extent, too. But in most countries of the world, uh, the, the amount of nationally owned land is, is actually much smaller than that. So we do stand out. Aren't national wonders like Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls recognized internationally as symbols of the United States? Have public lands served to unify us in more than a purely symbolic way? Uh, absolutely. I mean, from the beginning, the public lands were used. Uh, and I'm beginning, I mean, the Declaration of Independence onward. Uh, the public lands have, have been used to unify the nation. In the early days, in the early 19th century, for example, when the United States was admitting new states, uh, it was giving them generous grants of public land to use to start public school systems. Hmm. So the public lands actually uh, helped engineer this tradition of public education in the United States. And then uh, starting somewhat before the Civil War, the, United, the public land grants, generous grants, were used to develop infrastructure, telegraph lines, canals, and especially railroads. Uh, railroad enterprises got more than 100 million acres of public land grants. Uh, and that was responsible for the, the transcontinental railroads and the stitching of the nation together as it, as it moved across the continent. So... Ideas about the frontier and the American expansion have also been at the heart of our sense of national identity, but also at, uh, in the creation of, of uh, public lands. Did views of the frontier influence management of public lands or, or vice versa? Oh, sure. Uh, the, the core of my story, my story is about basically the political decisions by which the United States decided to sort of stop giving all this land away and start keeping substantial amounts of it in national ownership and to manage that land for open space and conservation and these broad purposes I, I, I've talked about. That story, that the core of that story really began around 1890, about 25 years after the, the Civil War. That's when the Congress decided we should start keeping substantial amounts of land and in fact, we should actually start buying back some of the land we gave away, particularly in the East and the South and the Midwest, to establish new national land holdings. So all of the lands you see in the East that are in national forests or national parks or national seashores and that sort of thing are actually land the United States decided, beginning early in the 20th century, to purchase back or to get back and hold in national ownership. So the national land base has actually been expanding. Uh, modestly in, in recent years because of that. But Yellowstone National Park, our first national park, was established in 1872, before the Civil War. What prompted government action then? 
Well, the, actually, the first real reservation of federal lands of importance was in Yosemite Valley in, in California in 1864, right in the middle of the Civil War. Now, Congress there didn't actually make that a national park, but but it basically gave it to California and said, you shall hold this forever as a state park mm -hmm. under federal law. So Yosemite, in some respects, was sort of the world's first national park, but it's not considered that because it passed through the, the state. The state later gave it back to the United States. Yellowstone was the first national park that the United States said, we're going to set aside this land we own and, and hold it open forever for open space. That was 1872. But those two examples were, uh, were not acted upon immediately. Another 20 years went by before the American public decided, as I said, around 1890, to say, hey, you know, we're actually uh, losing all this land. It's passing into private state ownership, and we really need to keep substantial amounts of that land. And so in 1890, st Congress started passing laws and presidents started using those laws to reserve more and more lands in national forests, national parks, and later national wildlife refuges and, and other kinds of conservation designations. Four agencies manage most of the public lands, the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service, and the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, which I guess was the original one, wasn't it? Well, 1871? The, the, the first federal agency to really be recognized as that, as a f permanent federal land manager, was the Forest Service, mm -hmm. uh, starting a, around the turn of the 20th century. And that's a part of uh, the Department of Agriculture. The other Forest Service is part of the Department of Agriculture. It was originally in the Interior Department, and then in 1905, Congress moved it to the Agriculture Department. The other three major agencies are, are all in the Interior Department. And that's been a source of some interesting, you know, sort of tension over the years, the fact that we have these four agencies, and three in one de cabinet department and one in another, uh, made for some interesting stories and all of that. But it hasn't changed the fundamental theme that I think emerges from this overall story, which is that regardless of which agency is managing these lands, today we manage them all pretty much the same for the same broad public purposes. There are some, a few different dif uh, differences uh, between how the agencies manage. In other words, you can't mine in a national park. Uh, you can mine in the national forests or the Bureau of Land Management lands, but frankly, not that much mining takes place. The Bureau of Land Management Forest Service manage most of their land for open space, much like the Park Service manages its land. And they're all open to general public recreation, and that includes hiking, camping, uh, 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 hunting, fishing, and all that sort of thing. So all the lands, there's been a, a gradual blurring of distinctions among the four agencies. Um, and that's one reason I wrote the book, is to, to bring attention to this, because I think uh, more and more, most people and the Congress actually consider all these lands to be managed for broad open space purposes. And so they don't really uh, differentiate much in terms of which agency is, is actually doing the managing. Well, this is your follow-up to a textbook on the subject, isn't it? Well, I've, for years, I've uh, uh, co-authored a this sort of standard public land law textbook that is used in, in many law schools. But my book, this new book, is a history, is a conventional uh, political history. It's not, there's some law in it, but it's not a law book. It is a book for the general public uh, interested in the general history, political history 
of the public lands. You know, I've talked about public lands over the years in many settings. And when I start out and say, you know, it's kind of amazing that more than 600 million acres, you know, almost a third of the country are owned by the national government, even though we we love private property and we kind of distrust the government. Isn't that amazing? And people almost always said, yeah, that is amazing. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. And so I decided eventually I should write a book to explain how it happened. What were those political decisions that led to this result? A result, I should add, that that is poll after poll shows is tremendously popular, not only among Democrats, but Republicans, not only among Easterners, but Southerners and Westerners. Uh, it's it's a it's a widely, widely supported in a nonpartisan or bipartisan way. Although there have been some struggles about details. Uh, the the four agencies are all arms of the executive branch. Has the executive branch always had most of the policy-making power, or has it acquired it over, the to over time? Well, that's an interesting uh, and important question. In the original uh, beginnings of my story around 1890, what Congress tended to do was say, we want to keep these lands. Now, you, the executive branch, figure out how to manage them. Uh, and so it gave the executive branch, the Forest Service and these agencies, uh, very broad authority to decide how to manage them. But gradually over the years and beginning after World War II and really beginning, uh, especially in the 1960s, Congress changed its attitude. And it said, actually, we need to exercise more of the decision making authority. We need to take back from the executive a lot of that power we've delegated to them. And so a lot of modern public land management. Uh, making uh, the, the basic management decisions are made by Congress, not by the executive. That's why we have, if you look at these lands, all kinds of designations like National Recreation Area and National Conservation Area, National Scenic Area. And Congress has put lots of different labels on these lands, all uh, with the idea of we're going to, we the Congress are going to define how these particular areas of land are going to be used. So this recapture of policymaking authority by Congress is one of the major modern stories of public land uh, management. John D. Leshy is my guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. His book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, is published by Yale University Press. Well, Talking about the struggle with Congress, you discuss a largely forgotten congressman, Wayne Aspinall, a conservative Democrat from Colorado who tried to, quote, restore congressional primacy in public land policymaking. And didn't he call environmentalists overindulgent zealots and aristocrats? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wayne Aspinall was a very interesting figure, and, and I give him a fair amount of attention in the, in the modern part of my book. Um, because he was. He was a very conservative Democrat from the western slope of Colorado. He'd been a but, Republican, or his family had been Republican, and he, I guess uh, he saw this as being in Colorado's interest? Yeah, he represented, you know, rural western Colorado, um, and he, he was a fan of mining and industrial development and all of that kind of thing. But he also firmly believed— that Congress ought to make the ultimate decisions, not the executive branch. And so he promoted um, the, uh, something called the Wilderness Act in 1964, which was a very restrictive uh, piece of legislation in which Congress said, if, if, land is if we label land wilderness, 
you can't build roads in it, you can't mine it, you can't log it, et cetera. It's really just open space conservation. So a very restrictive category. Wayne Aspinall supported that bill, but he insisted that only Congress could designate wilderness areas. Every acre of wilderness had to be included in an act of Congress. Um, now, what he underestimated, badly underestimated, was the amount of grassroots support for wilderness. And so today, more well over 100 million acres of public land, perhaps a fifth of the entire public land system, is in wilderness areas because Congress has enacted a whole series of individual laws that have said this particular area over here shall be put in the national wilderness system. That is a congressional decision. I have no doubt that Aspinall is flipping in his grave at the extent to which the wilderness system grew, but that's the way he set it up. He just missed the boat. He underestimated the political support for wilderness. Um, and so I give him credit for that because he, he was one of the architects of this congressional recapture uh, that I talked about and had enormous impact, not the impact he wanted, which was more industrial uses, but the opposite. But if he were alive, he might have been pleased uh, when the Trump administration tried to reverse some of that. Yes, and that's, all, that's also an interesting story because, you know, Donald Trump uh, presided over um, two um, retreats, you might say, on, on this arc that I've been talking about, this, that we're always protecting more and more land. Uh, President Obama and President Clinton, uh, using power Congress had given them, uh, designated two very large protected areas in southern Utah. One's called the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and the other is called the Bears Ears National Monument. Um, create, uh, protecting about three million acres of, of of federal land from from most forms of, of serious development, holding them open for open space and protection of cultural resources and the like. Donald Trump comes into office and he he doesn't eliminate them, but he shrinks them drastically, cuts their size from three million to maybe, I don't know, a, a, something under a million, uh, several hundred thousand acres. Uh, quite controversial, as you might guess. And um, uh, one of the very, very few times that there has been a rollback in protection. Um, and uh, well, long story short, uh, President Biden comes in and, and restores uh, the uh, monuments to the way they were originally established uh, without, frankly, a lot of fuss. I mean, the state of Utah said they're going to sue, but they haven't sued yet. Um, but uh, I think most people, including people in the local area, have generally accepted the idea. In fact, um, and this is an important point, while Trump did that, Trump also asked his people, I want to look at all these protected areas and I want you to give me, you know, um, uh, recommendations about what I should do with lots of these protected areas. And his people came back and said, look, people, the American people support all these protected areas. So we're only going to single out these two because we think there's some opposition in Utah that you might be able to capitalize on. And, and so we'll only recommend you do away with these two or not even do away with them you shrink these two um but the rest of the the protected areas have remained uh, largely unchanged by trump not only that and this is a very important point donald trump also continued to sign into law bipartisan legislation that expanded protections for more public lands hmm. um 
he he had signed two uh, signed two big bills in 2019 and 2020 that have been regarded as some of the most important public land legislation protection legislation uh, in the modern era. And uh, so again, illustrating the point that there is a huge amount of broad grassroots bipartisan support uh, for protecting these lands, and that the the Bears Ears, the Utah Monument uh, sort of uh, thing that Trump did was kind of a small hiccup in this process, and it did not change the general trajectory. At the time of the revolution, did American colonists see the lands to the west of the colonies as unowned and up for grabs? Uh, my book begins uh, with this that story because it illustrates a basic theme of how the public lands have really almost always brought American people together, not drive them apart. Well, some um, American people, because did the founders see Native Americans as having yeah. any claim to the land? Well, that's right. But they were, you know, excluded from the political system, basically. Uh, and I, my history is a political history. Um, when after the Declaration of Independence, the 13 former colonies had to form a government. And they came together and started talking, OK, how are we going to put this government together? And they were bitterly divided over a basic issue, which was seven of the 13 former colonies had claims to lands west of the Appalachians. And six former colonies had fixed western boundaries and didn't have those land claims. So well, Maryland and New Jersey. Yeah, yeah there are maps Sorry. of the U.S. from the 1780s that show states like Connecticut and Virginia extending all the way to the Mississippi River. Absolutely. Virginia's colony uh, charter from the British crown uh, said it went from sea to si shining sea. I mean, Virginia claimed land all the way to the Pacific. Uh, and so the, the colonies without those claims naturally uh, feared that they were going to be dominated in this new government. And they said, we are not going to join this new government until those seven colonies with the claims give them up, give their claims to the national government. And that's exactly what happened eventually. It took three or four years to negotiate. But eventually, uh, these Western land claims were transferred to the national government. So the national government uh, began owning and managing those lands. Those were the first public lands. And they, were, they came into being because um, uh, they were necessary to bring the nation together. And the deal was the national government will manage these lands to serve broad general public purposes. Originally, they were for things like public education and infrastructure. But as the nation's political, the culture changed, uh, Americans finally came to decide, as I said, starting around 1890, we really need to keep a, a good deal of these lands. And we need to get more of these lands uh, to, in national ownership to manage for these, these broad purposes. What's the significance of President Biden's naming a Native American, Deb Haaland, as Interior Secretary? Well, it's very significant. She's the first Native American in the cabinet in American history. Uh, appropriate that she's in the Interior Department because it manages a lot of public lands um, and as well as dealing with Indian affairs. Um, and it's a it is a, a, a powerful symbol, I think. It, one of the chapters toward the end of my book, I talk about the. Um, interests and the growing presence of Native Americans, indigenous peoples in the public land space. Um, after World War II, you know, you know, Native Americans were dispossessed from most of their land, beginning with Columbus and, you know, going all the way back well before the United States was formed. They were thrown off their lands and um, shipped, European shipped governments. Shipped to then, reservations. 
Yeah. And then the United States, you know, acquired title to the land and through treaties and deals that were, you know, the, the bargaining power wasn't equal. There was a lot of injustice involved in this. That story was basically over shortly after the Civil War. Uh, so it's not the story I tell. There are a lot of there's, there's some good books about the story of Native American dispossession. That's not the story I deal with, because, as I said, my story really starts after that occurred. But and here's the point in the modern era, um, Native Americans ne never lost, obviously, their their uh, ancestral ties to these lands uh, and their spiritual ties to these lands. And uh, so in the modern era, as Native American nations have exerted more power and influence and become more consequential in the political system, they have um, uh, begun to influence how the public lands are managed. And, uh, and in some cases, uh, the government has decided to restore some of their lands where there's been particular injustices and that sort of thing. And that's happened in a lot of different places. Uh, and my book talks about that, that sort of modern influence. Um, and so Deb Holland's um, uh, appointment as interior secretary is really, a, you know, sort of, in a way sort of caps that that growth of modern Indian influence. And so we're going to see more in that area. I mean, one of the small things she's done, but but highly symbolic, is she created a task force to uh, sort of. Uh, re review and recommend place names on public lands that have racist implications, uh, particularly anti-Native uh, American implications, and uh, because uh, there are quite a few, as you might guess, uh, place names. And, and the Interior Department actually um, has a board of geographic names that, that, that controls that process. So, uh, so Holland has put that process of, of uh, uh, re-examining place names um, in place, and that's you know small, but but a highly symbolic move. Still, if you go to the Four Corners area, you can't help but be aware of just how important uh, the Native Americans were to the development of of at least that part of the country. Um, I, I know you said you most of your focus is post Civil War, but can we just uh, devote a couple more minutes to the the years before a series of homestead acts were passed starting with the Donation Land Claim Act in 1850 and the Homestead Act in 1862. And as you mentioned, the first transcontinental railroad was built between 1863 and 1869. Could states individually have managed such rapid development? Was the um, federal government essential to standardizing and coordinating American expansion? I think it was. Uh, I think everybody recognized that. Um, you know, before the Civil War, a lot of the public land policy questions were tied up with slavery because it all had to do with the expansion of slavery and whether slavery was going to be allowed in these new territories. And uh, as the United States admitted new states, you know, going across the, the landscape, um, that was a huge issue, particularly in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, and it, it stopped all kind of uh, public land policymaking. Uh, basically, because the South and North were fighting over uh, this this slavery expansion uh, issue. In fact, the, the infamous Dred Scott case, which was a Supreme Court decision in 1857, that it was widely regarded as the absolute worst Supreme Court decision of all time. Uh, actually, one important part of it said the United States has no power over public lands um, um, because 
the majority of the Supreme Court wanted to protect slavery, and they didn't want Congress to be able to outlaw slavery. Well, when the Civil War began and the Southerners walked out of the Congress, that freed up Congress to address a lot of these long postponed issues. So in the first uh, six months of 1862, Congress passed a whole series of major public land laws that had been stymied for decades. The Homestead Act, uh, the first, the, the big transcontinental railroad land grant acts. Uh, it passed the Morrill Act, which, which gave public land grants for uh, higher education across the country. So many of our uh, noted universities in all states um, are funded through public land grants uh, made by that at Morrill Act of 1862. So, so did, that did, really um, had a huge effect on the settlement of the West because the Transcontinental Railroads were built and the Homestead Act made land available for farming and that sort of thing. And so there was this big um, rush um, to use the public lands and exploit them for this expansion, um, which happened in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. Uh, and that was something that Mark Twain called the Gilded Age, wrote a book about, where there was, you know, a lot of uh, inequality, the growth of economic inequality in particular, a growth of vast uh, industrial enterprises like railroads and all of that, um, the beginning of the labor movement that was being oppressed by those large enterprises. And there was a big backlash to that. And that backlash fed into um, the notion that we should not, if we continue to give all these lands away, we're going to basically be dominated by these huge, large landowners. And these lands are going to be locked up to ordinary Americans. And so that, that realization really did... Uh, changed the politics a great deal and led to Congress, as I said, beginning around 1890, uh, changing its general policy, say we need to keep some of these lands uh, and keep them open for general public use. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. you're enjoying my conversation with John Leshy. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and we will be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And we thank you so much. And uh, we return now to John Leshy, who is, uh, uh, has been deeply involved with America's public lands since he graduated from college. He was solicitor for the U.S. Department of Interior from 1993 to 2001. And we're discussing his new book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, which is published by Yale University Press. 
Um, one of the uh, – uh, okay. Uh, were laws crafted in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, guided by scientific understanding? Um, uh, yes, to some extent, uh, but that the paying attention to science was something that grew really through the 20th century. So when did people um, start thinking about conservation or preservation? When did we begin to recognize that we could cause lasting damage to the environment? Well, the realization started in the post-Civil War era, and one of the very influential figures that I uh, talk about was a uh, a politician, a former member of Congress and amb ambassador to Italy, who wrote uh, a book called Man and Nature in 1864, went through several printings, um, was very um, uh, popular. Uh, and he called attention to the fact that, you know, we could trash our environment and uh, and ruin uh, our standard of living. He, he, he came to that realization in a couple of ways. One was um, he grew up in Vermont um, and... Uh, had seen a, a you know devastation of a lot of Vermont lands and fisheries and that sort of thing, and then he became ambassador to Italy, appointed by Lincoln, uh, uh, George Perkins Marsh, by the way, was his name, and uh, in Italy he saw how the, the the logging in the in the Italian Alps and the mountains had actually devastated, uh, caused a lot of erosion, flooding, and that sort of thing, and so he kind of put two and two together and said, you know, man actually. Uh, can have a devastating effect if we don't curb his, his appetite and influence. And that was a, uh, a message that actually began to resonate. Uh, and as I said, built, helped build this political movement that uh, we should um, uh, set aside some of these lands to make sure that doesn't happen here. And that's why the first major uh, impulse was to set aside forested watersheds in the mountains. Uh, and that was the beginning of the national forest system that started in 1891. And quickly, uh, with authority from Congress, presidents set aside about 150 million acres. About a quarter of the acreage we see today was actually set aside uh, to protect the, the watersheds and the water supplies, particularly important in the arid West. Uh, and those were, and I can't emphasize enough, those decisions were supported at the grassroots. This was not a federal land grab, as you know, some extremists today want to talk about. Uh, you know, this is all a giant land grab by the federal government. That it didn't happen that way at all. The early decisions to set aside the the national what are today the national forests were almost all petitioned for at the grassroots, at the local level, by governors and chambers of commerce and the like. Uh, we want to protect those forested watersheds because if we need that water and we don't want to be devastated by erosion and floods and et, et cetera, if we exploit those lands to the ultimate degree. So this is a grassroots movement, not a land grab. But you note uh, that despite moves to open up land for commercial development, Ronald Reagan and other Republicans expanded land, public lands in the past. And Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush both acted to protect wetlands, even though Republican Senator Alan Simpson thought that Reagan's Interior Secretary James Watt went too far. Uh, absolutely. And that's uh, also an interesting episode I talk about uh, in my book. Um, well, that's why I brought because, it up. <laughs> because uh, at the end of the Jimmy Carter administration, there was this kind of brief hiccup 
uh, it was called the Sagebrush Rebellion. This was kind of an invention of the uh, of the press um, because the uh, some cattle grazers, livestock operators on federal lands were unhappy uh, that they thought the federal government was going to regulate them too much. So they went to their local legislatures and said, you know, why don't you claim some of these federal lands and say you own them? And a handful of Western states actually, to placate the ranchers, uh, passed these laws. They were just a gesture. It, it, no state ever tried to enforce these laws. Nobody paid any attention to these laws. But this thing was called the Sagebrush Rebellion by the press. And Ronald Reagan, who was a very deft politician, uh, picked up on this. And so during his campaign for the presidency, he he kind of proudly said, I'm a Sagebrush rebel. Um, and so, you know, the, the sort of fringe thought, wow, he's going to come into office and, and get rid of all these federal lands and give give us title. Uh, well, that never happened uh, because Reagan quickly understood that uh, that was political suicide. Now, he did at one point, he was talked by some libertarian economists on his staff. He was talked into proposing to sell 35 million acres of so-called surplus federal land. And so he actually endorsed that idea. It went nowhere. It, it, it attracted huge amount of opposition locally as well as nationally. And so Reagan, no fool, uh, quickly went to the middle and said, we're going to forget about all this, you know, getting rid of federal land stuff. And he ended up signing more bills that put more lands in the wilderness system in the lower 48 states than any president before him or after him. Um, and as you said, George H.W. Bush uh, also you know, had a pretty strong environmental record, uh, as did many Republican presidents. And that's a, a, a real important theme of the book. This cause, if you want to call it that, has been bipartisan always. You know, who first protected Death Valley, one of the world's premier national parks now? Herbert Hoover did it. Um, who first set aside the... Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, this giant area on the north slope of Alaska that is this pristine um, area with a gigantic caribou hood and all that. Who first protected that? Uh, Dwight Eisenhower's interior secretary, former Republican senator from Nebraska named Fred Seaton. Nobody's ever heard of this guy. But he, while he was in office, created 11 million acres of wildlife refuges in Alaska, including the Arctic. So there are all these stories about these Republicans uh, doing great things on the public lands. And, it, and frankly, it's always been that way. Uh, what Donald Trump did with those two Utah monuments was a, was a glaring exception to a long bipartisan tradition. Did the people who occupied the, the Malheur, I forgot how to pronounce that, M-A-L-H-E-U-R, yeah. Wildlife right. Refuge headquarters in 2016, consider themselves sagebrush rebels? Well... Frankly, you know, th that's a, a lunatic fringe. Um, uh, they, you know, they, they occupied the Malheur Refuge saying, we want to take these lands back. This is a federal land grab. We want to take the lands back. You know how the Malheur National Wildlife Federation uh, Refuge was created? It was created in the 1930s because the land was privately owned and managed by a meat, com meat packing company. And they were going bust because of the dust bowl. And they were desperate to unload the lands. And so the United States said, actually, this has got potential as a wildlife refuge. We'll buy the lands for, from you. And so the national government bailed out these private landowners uh, and created this national wildlife refuge. Well, you know, these fringe guys 
arm to come along in 2016 and say we want we want to get these lands back. Want it back. It, 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 yeah, it had. Uh, of course, the local Indian tribe, who had you know lost those lands long before, uh, sort of chuckled at the idea that yeah they're going to get the lands back. You know what? What about us? I mean, they, they had a much better case. Well, did they think that state governments would be more amenable to their demands? You know, frankly, it's not clear what they were after, other than just sort of making this kind of angry uh, protest. Uh, you know, the, the family that instigated this, the Bundy family, they also were making these arguments in, in Nevada uh, for lands that they ranched in Nevada. And uh, a state court judge uh, a couple of years ago looked at their claims, their legal claims, and said he called them, quote, utterly delusional. And, and I think that's a fair description of the, of the arguments that they were making. Are lawmakers paying adequate attention to the science as they craft land management and environmental policy now in light of uh, the fact that we uh, are facing a serious climate change crisis? Well, that's, you know, one of the gigantic issues of the day. Global issue uh, obviously faces all the nations of the world. And it's a huge challenge. Uh, the, the UN is getting involved now. Absolutely. Uh, and they need to. And th this has to be an international global solution. Now, I argue in the book that uh, the public lands or the history of public lands uh, can teach us a fair amount about how we confront this challenge. Of, it's really a twin challenge, uh, climate change and biodiversity loss. And they're, they're closely related, obviously. Um, the public lands can teach us a lot here. Uh, for one thing, at the kind of most fundamental and most philosophical uh, the, the way we have to deal with climate change and biodiversity loss as a as a human race is we have to recognize that the collective needs of everybody outweigh the individual needs uh, or the individual desires of of interest groups. Uh, the public lands are a great lesson in that because that's exactly what the nation decided beginning around 1890 that we wanted to hold on to these resources and manage them in the general public interest because our collective interest in, in preserving uh, biodiversity and watersheds and that sort of thing uh, outweighs the, the sort of demands of, of individual interest groups. So the, the political lesson here is we've done this in, in the public lands and we need to do it in terms of uh, confronting climate change and uh, biodiversity uh, nationally and globally. Um, uh, it's also true and important that the, the public lands uh, uh, can help us uh, through this transition. Um, you know, a fair amount of uh, the nation's oil and gas, for example, and coal is produced from public lands. Um, and we need to transition away from that as we you know, decarbonize the economy, as, as we have to if the planet is going to avoid catastrophe. Um, uh, well, the public lands have, you know, good wind and solar resources, and that is a big emphasis now. Um, and there's a there's kind of a snapshot that happened recently that that shows shows how this works. One of the things Donald Trump did uh, was he persuaded every Republican in Congress to support uh, opening up the Arctic wildlife refuge to oil and gas leasing. This is something the state of Alaska and the oil and gas industry had sought for 40 years. It had always been, Congress prohibited oil and gas leasing there in 1980. 
but they wanted to change the law. And in 2017, uh, on a strict party line vote, uh, Congress opened, passed a law authorizing oil and gas development in the Arctic. And Trump signed it. And then they had a lease sale in January 2021 as Trump was leaving office. Uh, the Interior Department put uh, large tracts of land in the Arctic Refuge up for bidding. Almost nobody bid. Uh, they said it was going to produce hundreds or millions, if not billions of dollars in revenue. And it produced a total of $14 million in bids, almost all from the state of Alaska. It was a gigantic bust. Um, the major oil companies stayed away from it. The costs were too high. They didn't want the bad publicity, etc. Now, fast forward two weeks ago, last week. Uh, the Interior Department conducted a lease sale for wind energy off Long Island. It was a fantastic <laughs> interest, and they sold more than four uh, four point seven billion billion dollars worth of leases. So contrast what happened in the Arctic Refuge, fourteen million in bids, with the four point seven billion in bids for wind energy leasing off Long Island. Uh, that's kind of captures, those are both public lands decisions. And that sort of captures the kind of transition that we need to make. And we are making. It's in process. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is John D. Leshy whose book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, is published by Yale University Press. Um, is the growing political polarization affecting our approach to federally owned and managed land? Uh, as you've pointed out, in the past, wasn't support for conservation generally bipartisan? Are conservatives today, at least some of them, denying scientific findings? Well, yeah, that's a complicated question. On public lands issues generally, the bipartisan support is still there. Now, the rhetoric, the rhetoric can be hostile and, and partisan, uh, but the underneath uh, what Congress actually does in terms of public land policy is generally to protect through bipartisan support. So that hasn't changed. There's a lot of rhetorical division about climate change, the science of climate change and the like. Um, uh, but. Uh, but but the public lands have always been sort of exempt from this uh, partisan polarization that we see uh, today. Now, whether that changes in the future, uh, uh, obviously, who knows? Um, uh, but it, it's remarkable uh, that that bipartisan theme has survived on public lands policy. There are plenty other policy areas where there's this sharp disagreement. But on public lands, quiet things get done in a bipartisan way, and they're almost all protected. But what are conservatives currently demanding with regard to the hundreds of millions of acres of pub in public lands? And could this be an issue in the 2022 midterm elections? Well, Because the, the, they've argued, it, some have argued that federal ownership is unconstitutional. Haven't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a ridiculous ar ar argument. And no nobody takes that seriously. And, and you know, the Republicans, uh, I, I will say, have um, the Republican platform in the last uh, 20 years or so has often contained a plank which uh, says we ought to systematically review all the public lands and get rid of the ones that we don't need, you know, privatize them. 
Um, that plank, I think, is a, uh, some might call it a cynical strategy. They're, they're kind of tossing a bone to the, to the fringe constituency, the sort of libertarian constituency to think that government never does anything right and, and we should just downsize the government. Um, but those planks in the platform have never had any impact whatsoever. Uh, that is, no bills have been introduced in Congress to privatize large amounts of land. Nobody talks that way in, in political circles. So it's just a it's a rhetorical kind of uh, cynical gesture to to the right wing. Uh, now, could that change? Well, of course it could change. I mean, we might have somebody come in who uh, you know gets elected who says, "Oh, we really need to get rid of a lot of these lands. These are political lands. These are political decisions." And so. Uh, you know, the future is in the hands of of uh, uh, the young people who are going to decide, you know, eventually take office and decide what to do about these lands and uh, whether to keep that long tradition that I've talked about or whether to make some drastic changes like getting rid of them. Congress can do it overnight. There's no question about it. Congress can down, you know, eliminate every national park, downsize the, the public lands if it wants to. So it remains, uh, you know, open to the political process. Well, according to the Land Report magazine, 50 individuals and families own 31 million acres in the United States, which is half the land area of the British Isles, and property prices are soaring. So are we seeing a new kind of land speculation, and where do fe the federal and state governments come into this picture? That's a good question, and, you know, I, I talked earlier about the Gilded Age and the the idea that there was this gigantic inequality in wealth and income in the in the latter part of the 19th century, which which had an awful lot to do with the with the movement to protect lands, because as I said, the, people thought if if we if we have this easy come easy go land policy, you know, big landowners will end up owning everything and excluding the common people. Uh, something like that, you know, could happen again, and and certainly there are big private landowners out there. And in places like Idaho, for example, there have been, and Montana, there have been controversies where uh, private landowners come in and they they close off, you know, hiking trails. You can't cross my land to get to this nearby national forest, and creating some controversy. Uh, and there's been a lot of pushback, as you might guess, uh, from people who want to keep access to public lands. Um, uh, now, now, let me say another thing. It's kind of interesting. Uh, as I mentioned, livestock grazing is a, is a very widespread use of public lands. But who are the ranchers today? Are they the, you know, sort of dirt under the fingernails kind of tough people who carved out a living in harsh conditions that we tend to think of, you know, celebrated by Hollywood and all that? Well, uh, I saw a couple of weeks ago that Rupert Murdoch, the media uh, czar, uh, bought a, a several hundred thousand acre ranch in Montana that had permits to graze cows on 200,000 acres. So he's a, he's a public land rancher now, Rupert Murdoch. Now, not the kind of guy you think of uh, who is a, a rancher here. Um, now, by the way, who did he buy that land from? Uh, and that ranch, he bought it from the Koch brothers. Uh, <laughs> so one of, the, one of the hidden stories here is that it's been estimated that, that as many as half of the uh, livestock ranchers who have permits to graze federal lands are actually uh, what we call amenity ranchers. They're, they're pursuing a lifestyle, not not a living. You know, they, they, they make their money somewhere else, uh, but they like to, you know, be think of themselves as ranchers. So they buy these public land ranchers. That may be half of the 
the ranchers on public lands uh, today. So the specter of, you know, large, wealthy entities buying up land is always out there. And, and you know, the inequality in income and, and wealth today is, by many measurements, as, as large as it was in the 1880s. Uh, that gave rise to that Gilded Age. So uh, we have to leave uh, it, it there, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, what a great pleasure it has been to talk to you. My guest is John, has been John D. Leshy. His new book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands from Yale University Press. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to contributing producer Hugh Sansom for preparing this interview and to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopate at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We need uh, your help to keep bringing this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a, a copy of the book we've been discussing, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands by John Leshy. So why not make that call now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And during Women's History Month, we are offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know you appreciate what we do on this show by going online. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org to play your part. Uh, with keeping this historic station alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Monday when my guest, Rosemary Reed, will discuss playing in the FM band, her new film about New York public radio legend Steve Post. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.